Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, this is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio. And how the tech are you? Now, normally on a Wednesday, I would attempt to bring to you a Tech Stuff Tidbits episode, which is ostensibly supposed to be a shorter episode, but we all know how that goes when you got chatty Kathy over here yapping into the microphone. But today I'm just going to abandon all hope of this being Tidbit-ish. And that's because yesterday, that being May 10th, 2022, Apple brought an end to an era. The company announced that it was discontinuing the iPod Touch, which is the last model in the iPod line to be made. All the others have already been retired. So the iPod was a transformational technology, and now iPod, as a brand, is going away. In fact, we get the term podcasting from the iPod. Uh, Now, the iPod was not the first MP3 player, But it was the model that brought that technology into the mainstream. And moreover, the iPod played a pivotal role in turning Apple's fortunes around. 
It's pretty easy for us to forget these days that just a couple of decades ago, the multi-trillion dollar company that is Apple today back then was on the verge of collapse. So I thought we could do a quick rundown of the history of the iPod and why I argue it is one of the most important technologies to emerge specifically for me (laughs) to get real selfish and egotistical about it, but one of the most important technologies to emerge over the last couple of decades. Uh, And I think this dovetails nicely with Monday's episode about DRM disasters. Uh, In that episode, I talked about how Apple, under pressure from music labels, included DRM or digital rights management on digital files, that is songs and albums that it sold through its iTunes music store. A few years later, Apple would be the company that was able to dictate its own terms because the tables had turned. And that's how much things changed in just a few years. The the glove was on the other foot. I might be getting turned around. Anyway, let's, let's roll back the clock a bit. As I said, the iPod was not the first MP3 player, and it definitely wasn't the first digital music player. There was a British inventor named Kane Kramer who came up with the idea for a digital music player way back in the late 1970s. He filed a patent for his design, which he called the IXI, or ICSI, or maybe it's supposed to be Roman numerals. But anyway, he he filed a patent for it in 1981, and uh, he received a patent in 1985, because these things take time. That device was capable of holding about three and a half minutes of audio, which would be about one and a half Ramones songs or the bit in a meatloaf song just before meatloaf starts to sing. Anyway, three and a half minutes is hardly useful. Digital audio files were really big, and storage was really limited. That combo just meant that the digital audio player technology wasn't quite ready for prime time, which is putting it lightly. Skip ahead to the early 1990s and the emergence of the MP3 file format, I did a whole episode about the creation and evolution of MP3s, so this is just going to be a short version of that story. So the MP3 format could compress audio files down to a more manageable size. The format does this by getting rid of information that's in the file. Ideally, it's information that doesn't impact the experience of listening to the audio. Uh, There's an entire psychoacoustic side to the MP3 technology that's all about determining what would be perceivable or perceptible and what would not. And you just get rid of all the stuff that isn't. The idea being that if a human is incapable of hearing a particular sound, there's no reason to include that information in the compressed file. Now, of course, you can encode MP3s so that they are more or less aggressive in their approach to compressing file sizes. The more aggressive you get, the smaller the compressed file will be, but the worse it will sound. So this is a lossy file format. But if you go easy with your compression, then the file size, it won't shrink down as much, but the fidelity, the the quality of the audio will be better. Anyway, the MP3 format made audio files more practical for, you know, the average person, like whether you wanted to just have them on your computer or potentially transfer them, say, over the internet. By the late 90s, 
there were a couple of companies that were experimenting with digital audio players that could play MP3 files. See, before that, the really the only way to enjoy MP3s was to listen to them on a computer. Uh, eventually, you did have some CD player manufacturers that started to produce compact disc players that could read MP3 compact discs. So in those cases, you could burn a CD with, you know, more than 100 songs on it in MP3 format. So they're not being burned in the the uh, the raw audio files that you would use to digitally imprint CDs. Instead, you're you're just burning MP3 files to the CD. But those weren't commonplace, and there certainly weren't very many portable solutions uh, around until the 2000s. So it just was not a very convenient form factor yet. Then you had a couple of companies like Elgar Labs that started to introduce digital audio players that could play MP3s. Uh, the Elgar Labs one was the MP Man F10. I'm guessing they were kind of naming their product, so it was kind of similar to Sony's Walkman trademark. And the F10 had 32 whole megabytes of memory, and it cost $250. There was also the Diamond Rio PMP300, which was more popular. It also only had 32 megabytes of storage. It hit the market not long after the F10 did. And please keep in mind that these players didn't have native connectivity on them. You could not download music directly to the device. Uh, you could not stream anything to the device. Instead, you would have to use software on your computer to manage your music library. Then you would transfer songs from your computer to your MP3 player using a physical cable that connected the two. This would be true for early iPods as well. In fact, true for everything up to and including the iPod Touch, at least in the early stages. The PMP300 in particular helped start to churn up interest in the MP3 format, right? Like there were geeks like me who were interested in MP3s back then. But once you got to a player that could actually store and play that stuff on its own and you could carry it around with you, that's when MP3s really started to gain some traction. That's also when the music industry really got involved. Uh, the Recording Industry Association of America, or RIAA, sued RioPort which was in charge of, of making Rio and the, the software used to manage the Rio, uh, because there was a general fear that folks would start buying compact discs, rip music from the CDs, and then share that music online without you know everyone going through the proper process of forking cash over to the music labels. And the RIAA lost that lawsuit. The court said, no, the existence of this thing does not automatically mean what you say it means. They're certainly not liable for people taking that that uh, path. People might, but it's not the fault of the company for that. And um, MP3 players and the software needed to transfer music from PCs to MP3 players were deemed to be totally legal. It turned out the RIAA was kind of on point with its fears, even if it didn't have legal grounds to stop MP3 players because people did start to share music online. And then once the peer-to-peer -peer network technology began to emerge, it really took off. It became pretty easy to distribute music files across lots of computers. So this was the birth of Napster in 1999, and the music labels went banana. 
A downturn in media sales sent a shockwave through the music industry, and they went nuclear on Napster and its users. Now, on the MP3 player side, developments began to push the technology forward. The Remote Solutions Personal Jukebox MP3 player did a big leapfrog over earlier devices because it actually included a small hard drive from a laptop as its storage device. And that pushed the jukebox's capacity to 4.8 gigabytes, which was leagues better than that 32 megabyte limitation of the earliest MP3 players. But generally speaking, these MP3 players were bulky. They were not really attractive. Uh, the ones with hard drives were also very heavy and delicate because hard drives have moving mechanical components. And if you were to, say, drop your MP3 player, you could damage those mechanical components and it wouldn't work anymore. And again, they weren't really stylish and they were really expensive. But Steve Jobs had an idea to change all that. I'll explain more when we come back after this quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI and revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more, while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. 
Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so I had set the stage for the early days of the MP3 player. Steve Jobs was in charge of Apple at this time. And, uh, you know, he had been a co-founder of Apple. He essentially got forced out of the company or essentially pushed aside enough so that he left the company. It all depends on which account you listen to. Then ultimately came back to rescue the company when it was on the verge of financial collapse. He saw the potential of the MP3 player space, but the devices on the market lacked style. They lacked utility. No one was knocking it out of the park. The existing ones were just too big and bulky and they were too ugly. And there were early adopter types who met the Venn diagram overlap of computer nerd and music nerd who were buying some of those early MP3 players. But most MP3 players just weren't user-friendly enough or attractive enough to hit mainstream success. So Jobs goes to his senior VP of industrial design, Johnny Ive, who is not yet a knight of the realm at this time. He is Sir Jonathan Ive now. And Jobs laid out what he wanted. He wanted a definitive MP3 player that the average person would want to buy. It had to be attractive. It had to be useful. It had to hold enough music to make it worthwhile. And this could really be Apple's next big thing. It took Johnny Ive's team a little less than a year to design, prototype, and finalize the first iPod which Jobs himself would debut to a small crowd on October 23rd, 2001. And Jobs knew he had to win some skeptics over, because this was a brand new business that Apple was getting into. So before unveiling the device itself, he explained that Apple was getting into this industry because, quote, music is a part of everyone's life, end quote. He made a business case for Apple to get into the MP3 player business. He said, It's not a speculative business. This isn't something where we're placing a bet. This is a sure thing. Music is important for everyone. And so all you had to do is point at the history of the music industry and say, there's your proof. So he was really dismantling criticisms before they could even be formed, which was pretty genius. He was also, by the way, totally right. So Jobs argued that there was no established leader in the digital music player space. Uh, He called out a couple of companies. He called out Creative, which made a model called the Zen, actually owned a Creative Zen way back in the day. And he said, well, that one has had some success, but still a very small company. It can't produce these things at scale. Then you had Sony, which was a very, very large company, but it had failed to produce a device that was a hit with consumers. So Jobs was saying This gave Apple the opportunity to swoop in and take the lead spot in a blossoming market. And he said that the iPod, the new Apple Music device, could play the four most popular digital formats for music at the time, which were MP3, MP3 VBR, WAVE, or WAV, and AIFF. Uh, the WAVE and AIFF formats were for uncompressed audio, WAVE being essentially developed for Microsoft machines and AIFF being an Apple development. That means you you end up with better sound quality, but the file sizes are much larger, so you're able to store fewer files on your device. 
Now, the original iPod featured a digital screen and had a mechanical wheel to scroll through options and song choices. That mechanical wheel was flush with the front of the the iPod's face. So in other words, you would put your thumb on the surface of this wheel and rotate the wheel around in order to scroll through a menu or through your music collection. It had a five gigabyte hard drive, which Jobs said was capable of holding up to 1,000 songs. Uh, Although he said like for most people, that would be their entire music library. So you could just have your whole library in your pocket. He also said those 1,000 songs could be encoded at a bit rate of 160 kilobits. Uh, The hard drive in the original iPod had a platter that measured just 1.8 inches in diameter and was 0.2 inches thick. So very, very thin. The iPod itself measured 4 inches tall, 2.4 inches wide, and was 0.78 inches thick. It was, as Jobs put it, the size of a deck of cards. Now, I realize I mentioned just a second ago bitrate, and I didn't really clarify what that was. But I do plan on doing a tidbits episode in the near future to explain sample rate and bitrate for digital audio. Those two factors play an important part in how large an audio file is and the audio quality of that file. But I didn't want to take up all of this episode to talk about it, so let's get back to the iPod. Now, to connect the iPod to a computer which originally was just limited to Mac computers, Apple built in a FireWire port on the iPod. Jobs said it would take 10 seconds to load a CD's worth of music onto the iPod compared to five minutes if you were using an old USB cable between a computer and an MP3 player. He also said it could take up to 10 minutes to transfer the full 1,000 songs to an iPod, but it would take five hours if you wanted to do the same with USB. So he was really touting the superiority of FireWire over USB at the time. Jobs also said that the iPod's battery would supply 10 hours of continuous play and that it would have fast charge capability to regain 80% of its capacity in one hour of charging. And that the FireWire cable would provide not just data transfer, but also provide power. So you could plug your iPod into your computer using the FireWire cable, and you could charge your iPod while you're also transferring music to it. And all this for the low, low price of $399. Uh, If we were to adjust for inflation today, that $399 would be about the same as $650. Yowza. Now, by the time Apple unveiled the iPod, the company had already launched iTunes. They launched iTunes at the beginning of 2001, and the iPod was announced in October of that year. Now, at that time, iTunes was strictly a digital music management program. You could put a CD into a Mac, and you could rip music from that CD and make digital files of it and use iTunes to organize your music collection, but it would live on your computer iTunes would then become the software component to manage iPods, at least on Macs. And connecting an iPod to your computer with iTunes would allow for automatic synchronization. So if you had added new music to your computer, well, the next time you plugged your iPod in, those new tracks could transition seamlessly to your iPod. So you'd have them ready for when you're on the go. The iPod was a... a, a pretty big departure for Apple, and it was a success. You know, Apple had experimented with some uh, 
consumer electronics outside of computers a bit in the past and had had, uh, let's say, mixed success. The Newton is a an infamous flop for Apple, right? But the iPod was not a flop. And the following year, in 2002, Apple updated the iPod. It would ultimately offer two models of the iPod, one that had a 10 gigabyte hard drive, so twice of the size of the original, and the second would have a 20 gigabyte hard drive. They also replaced the old mechanical scroll wheel, so you no longer had a wheel that you could physically turn around on the face of this iPod, and they replaced it with a capacitive sensing touch wheel. So kind of like a touch screen in a sense, except it wasn't a screen. It was just this round, rounded section of the surface of the iPod. So you were no longer physically turning a wheel to scroll through stuff. The new iPods were also compatible with Windows PCs, which dramatically expanded the potential customer base for Apple in the process. Now, at the time, there was no iTunes for PC. For, for Windows. So PC users had to rely on software called Music Match Jukebox in order to organize their music collections and send music over to their iPods. The new iPod also had a 30-pin dock connector, and then you could use a dock that had FireWire or a dock that had USB. That was good because FireWire was pretty much unheard of on Windows PCs. There were some that had FireWire ports, but it was not a standard. It was far more common to run into USB connections. In 2003, Apple introduced iTunes for Windows and thus migrated away from Music Match Jukebox. And um, iTunes for Windows was pants, meaning it was not good, at least in my opinion, at least back in those days. It felt bloated and unwieldy. It had massive processor demands. It took up too much of your computer memory, at least in my experience. I really didn't like using it. I'm sure I would have felt differently if I had owned a Mac computer instead of a Windows PC. But on Windows, it was a chore. Oh, and 2003 was also when Apple launched the iTunes Music Store, that meant that you could actually purchase digital music directly from Apple rather than rip it from CDs. Uh, that was the other way you could really get music. Uh, there were some other independent and, and studio-owned digital music stores out there, but none of them had really taken off in popularity. And of course, there was the, the black market you know, piracy uh, trading culture out there. Napster was gone by 2003, it had been sued out of existence, but it's not like piracy just went away after that. But this is when Apple introduced the legit iTunes music store. It's also when Apple would introduce the Fair Play Digital Rights Management or DRM solution, which restricted iTunes purchases to play only on authorized devices. So this was, again, back when music labels had a lot of leverage over Apple. All right, we've got a lot more to get through with the evolution of the iPod and its eventual demise. But before we get into any of that, let's take another quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. 
connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. Today, I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There is still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, we're up to 2004. That's when Apple would expand its iPod line again. So earlier years had seen iPods with you know, larger hard drive sizes and that kind of thing, like modest improvements. But 2004 saw entirely new iPod models. Apple introduced the iPod Mini in 2004, and as the name suggests, it was significantly smaller than the standard iPod, and it had a hard drive that could hold up to 1,000 songs, similar to the original iPod. Apple also introduced the iPod Photo, which was an iPod with a color digital screen that could display photos on it. Obviously, you would transfer the photos from your computer to your iPod, and you could scroll through them. And there was also a fourth-generation standard iPod as well. 2004 was also when the term podcasting began to catch on. Now, the practice had been around for a while. Right. There had already been cases of serialized digital audio content that people could subscribe to that dated back a few years from before 2004. But 2004 was where podcasting as a word really emerged. Uh, I would argue that that really drove home how Apple had nailed the MP3 player technology and the marketing for digital audio players 
because it had become the de facto leader in the space and had defined the technology. You know, it didn't it didn't invent it, but they refined it to a point where that was the standard. So much so that an entire medium was named after the iPod podcasting. Then in 2005, we got the iPod Nano, which was an even smaller iPod than the iPod Mini. It used flash storage rather than a hard drive. And in the early days of digital audio players, flash storage was a real limiter and it was really expensive. It couldn't hold very much and it cost a lot to produce. That's why Apple chose to go with physical hard drives for its early iPods. But by 2005, the capacity was starting to go up and the price was starting to come down. So the Nano was available in two gigabyte and four gigabyte capacity models. It had a color screen and it was 62% smaller than the iPod mini was, which in turn was smaller than the standard iPod. A few months after it debuted, the Nano would replace the mini and Apple would just discontinue the mini model entirely. Also, 2005 was when the iPod Shuffle came out. The iPod Shuffle uh, is an odd little thing. Most models don't have any display at all. Uh, in fact, it has a pretty simple interface. It's got a, a power button, a play-pause button, and controls that allow you to change the volume and skip a song or go back to a song. And the Shuffle could play songs, you know, in whatever order was organized on the device or... As the name suggests, it could shuffle them randomly. So the shuffle was even smaller than the Nano. It maxed out with a one gigabyte hard drive model when it launched, or I guess I should say flash drive model, one gigabyte of storage when it launched. Also in 2005, Apple introduced a fifth generation iPod that was capable of playing video. So now we're at the point where you could transfer video files to a, an iPod, which otherwise was modeled like the classic iPod, and you could watch those videos whenever you wanted. We're still in that era where you had to physically connect your iPod with your, your computer in order to synchronize files between the devices and to transfer new material to the iPod. So it's not like you could just download videos natively to the device. You still had to connect it physically to your computer to do that. And finally, 2005, finally for 2005 anyway, it was a critical year for my profession. See, that's the year that Steve Jobs announced that podcasts would be incorporated directly into iTunes. So iTunes users would be able to subscribe to podcasts, and whenever they synchronize their iPods with their computers, any new episodes of the shows they subscribe to would automatically transfer to their iPod. And Apple took podcasting, which at that time was still a very young medium, and they pushed it further toward the mainstream. The success of the iPod in no small way contributed to the early growth of podcasts, though it would take more than a decade for podcasts to become popular enough so that the average person knew what the heck a podcast was. Occasionally, I still run into people who aren't sure what a podcast is, but it's it's more rare these days. Now the joke is everybody has a podcast. Back then, most people didn't even know what the heck podcast was. And it also became true pretty quickly that if you wanted your podcast to do well, you really had to hold out hope that Apple was going to feature your podcast on its podcast page, because that pretty much guaranteed you would see a rush of new subscribers. Some of the shows on our network 
such as Stuff You Should Know, benefited tremendously due to Apple featuring the podcast on the iTunes podcast section. Now, I also have to point out that if it weren't for the fact that Stuff You Should Know is just a really great show with incredibly talented hosts, it wouldn't matter for all the promotion in the world, right? It wouldn't make a difference. If the show was terrible, people wouldn't stay subscribed to it. So I don't want to take any credit away from the creators. They are legitimately great at what they do. But the iTunes promotion helped them out considerably in the early days to get a big following. Now, 2006 was less eventful than 2005. Apple released updated generations for the iPod and the Nano and the Shuffle, Nothing really spectacular to note here. The new models were obviously improvements over previous generations, but that was pretty much it. But then in 2007, we got two things that would be huge for Apple. Now, the really big one was the iPhone. By this time, Apple's image had really skyrocketed. The popularity of the iPod had truly transformed the company, and the iPhone would push Apple beyond the stratosphere and into lower Earth orbit at least. But that same year, Apple also introduced the iPod Touch. The Touch was essentially an iPhone without the phone part. There was no cellular antenna in the iPod Touch, but it featured the same multi-touch screen as the iPhone. Most of the internal components were the same. It would have a camera. and had It was able to run apps, at least apps that didn't require a cellular connection. So in many ways, it was like an iPhone just without the phone part. And the iPod Touch also had Wi-Fi connectivity, so you could use an iPod Touch to browse the web or message people, and you could even purchase digital music wirelessly. You still couldn't synchronize wirelessly. That would come a little bit later. Apple still offered the original iPod form factor. Uh, I mean, not the original original, because we're not talking about a mechanical scroll wheel or anything, but the the form factor that we associate with the old school iPods. And from that point forward, Apple would refer to those types of iPods as the iPod Classic. By the end of 2007, Apple had sold more than 140 million iPods. Like I said, the iPod line transformed Apple, but the iPhone was going to be way more disruptive. Now, over the following years, Apple would continue to evolve the Nano, the Shuffle, and the Touch iPod lines. It would continue to support the classic line, but those really didn't change too much year to year. In 2008, Apple added a feature that let you play a random song on your Nano's playlist if you just shook your Nano. I really wonder how many Nanos perished as people overenthusiastically tried to search for a cool random song. In 2010, Apple changed the Nano design. It used to be kind of like a, a thin rectangle. It was much taller than it was wide. But the 2010 model turned the Nano into a square. It kind of looks like the watch face of an Apple Watch, in fact. The fourth generation iPod Touch would have a retina display. So that was a very high definition display capable of sharp, vibrant graphics. It could also shoot HD photos and videos and it was the first iPod Touch to have a front-facing camera, which meant you could actually use the iPod Touch to make FaceTime calls over Wi-Fi. The fourth-generation Touch would also get a further update that would allow for wireless synchronization with iTunes. So now you no longer had to dock your Touch 
to your computer to synchronize across the two devices. The fifth generation touch got a larger screen and a lightning dock connector, which allowed for even faster data transfer speeds. And during this time, Apple continued to support the iPod Classic models, but the company would ultimately discontinue those in September 2014. The iPod Shuffle and the iPod Nano would get the same treatment in 2017. Now, the reason I'm skipping over all that, like I'm going from essentially 2008 to 2014 to 2017, is because the evolution of the the devices were kind of gradual. Like they weren't, they weren't monumental leaps and it would be ridiculous just to go from year to year and say, and here's where these minor changes came into play. But now five years later in 2022, Apple is saying goodbye to the touch. And you might wonder why, why is Apple sunsetting the iPod line entirely? Well, it really has to do with that pesky iPhone. You see, as as the iPhone's battery life and storage capacity and then ultimately access to streaming music services increased, the demand for a standalone music playback device decreased. Uh, The touch held out longer than the others because it was essentially a cheaper iPhone just without the cellular phone part. You could even do Wi-Fi style calls on a touch. In fact, my buddy Ayaz Akhtar used an iPod Touch as his mobile phone for a short while. I remember him telling me about that at CES, and it blew my mind. Now, if you look at how much iPods have contributed to Apple's revenue, you would see that they really hit their peak in 2006. Not peak sales. They didn't hit their peak sales till 2008. But in 2006, they contributed the most by percentage to Apple's overall revenue. In 2006, they were about 40% of all of Apple's revenue. It just came from iPod sales. So so nearly half of all of Apple's revenue came from selling iPods in 2006. See, I told you, the iPod really turned things around for Apple. Now, actual iPod sales, like I said, they peaked in 2008. So they sold more iPods in 2008 than they did in 2006. They sold... 54.8 million units. Back in 2006, they had sold 39.4 million. But in 2008, even though they sold more iPods, those sales accounted for just 25% of Apple's revenue. And remember, in 2006, it was 40% of Apple's revenue. That tells you a lot right there, right? If a company sells 15 million more units two years later, but those sales contribute a smaller amount to the company's total revenue, something else is really taking off. That something else was the iPhone. So the iPod was still a mega success, but the iPhone was leaving it in the dust. From 2008, it was a downward trend. Now, it's not like iPod sales tanked immediately, but in 2009, it dipped from 54.8 million units to 54.1 million units. And at that point, the sales were accounting for around 19% of the company's total revenue, because again, the iPhone was just a monster. By 2014, the sales numbers were down to 14.4 million units and accounted for about 1% of the total revenue for Apple. Now, after 2014, Apple would just lump in iPod sales with other categories. 
so it became impossible to see how iPod sales and revenue were going. The iPhone had really eclipsed everything else. So it's not really a surprise that the iPod Touch is going away, or that the iPod line in general is riding off into the sunset. Some folks, like yours truly, held out for a really long time and carried both an MP3 player, and yes, I eventually abandoned my creative zen for an iPod Classic, and also carried a smartphone at the same time. I was one of those people. I had two devices. That was because I didn't want to run down my phone's battery while playing music, nor did I want to fill up my phone's storage with an, an enormous music collection because streaming services really weren't a thing yet, at least not a common thing. But eventually, streaming services increased capacity and better battery life all made standalone MP3 players kind of obsolete because smartphones could do it all. They could act as your music library and a streaming platform and a phone and a computer. There was no reason to have to carry two of them. Apple is going to sell off all remaining iPod touches that are in stock and then poof, they'll be gone. So if you want one, now's the time to buy one before they all end up on the aftermarket at ridiculously pumped up prices that they are just not worth that. They range in price from about $199 for a 32 gigabyte model up to $399 for a 256 gigabyte model. There are a few different colors available, though not every color of uh, iPod Touch has all the different storage capacities available. Some of them are already out of stock. And like I said, once the rest are gone, that's it. So farewell, iPod. Uh, you set Apple on a trajectory to become one of the most powerful companies in the world. And you lent your name to an art form that has become my career. Plus, even though I am an Android smartphone user, and I used to own a Creative Zen MP3 player, I do have to admit that the iPod form factor and its performance were top-notch. Just wish that darn iTunes software had worked better on Windows. That's it for this episode of Tech Stuff. If you have suggestions for topics I should tackle in future episodes, please reach out to me. The best way to do that is on Twitter. The handle for the show is TechStuffHSW. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hold up. 
Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.